Welcome to your best riding life. I'm your host, Linda Goldfarb. Each week, you'll receive tips and strategies from experts in the riding and publishing industry to help boost your best riding life. Let's get started. I'm so glad you're listening in today. Our topic is cleaning the clutter. And we're not talking about what's in your home. My industry expert is Alton L. Gansky. Let me tell you a little bit about Al. He is the author of over 50 books. He's been a Christie Award finalist for Ship Possessed, an Angel Award winner for Terminal Justice, and received the ACFW Award for Best Suspense Thriller for his work on Fallen Angel. He holds a Bachelor of Arts and Master of Arts in Biblical Studies and was granted a Doctor of Literature as well. It's an honor for us to have you with us today, Al. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. Now, one of the things that we love offering on Your Best Writing Life is a little insight into the life of our expert. And I will tell you right now, Al, you have piqued my curiosity. When, when I got your material that came in and it said that you're a professional used to be. Okay, I am so intrigued. You have, you have got to fill us in. What is that? Uh, the, the less polite way of saying it is I can't keep a job. Um, <laughs> but I've just been a lot of, I've been a lot of things. Um, I've been a firefighter, spent 10 years in architecture. I was a pastor for uh, about 20, 22 years, something like that. Or as I think of it, a, keeping the church from having a pastor. Um, I teach at a university. Uh, and of course, I've done... Uh, uh, the writing, written 50 books. Two of them are good. Um, I'll let you figure out which those two are. And I've done everything everything from working at McDonald's, but then again, who hasn't uh, worked at McDonald's, but worked in a bank and just went on and on and on from there. So uh, I've got a very eclectic background. I love it. I used to call it multiple background disorder is what I used to say. I suffered from multiple background disorder and sounds very similar to your used to be. So we have things in common here. This is really good, except I don't have over 50 books, but maybe two of mine are good. So that, that works with me as well. All right. There's something else I've learned. You have a unique yet extremely writer appropriate collection. So do tell what do you collect? I collect typewriters, big typewriters, small typewriters, old typewriters. I think the oldest typewriter I've had was uh, from 1915. And Whoa. there are older typewriters than that, but that was the oldest I had in uh, my collection. I've been collecting them now for a number of years. I used to do uh, videos on them on YouTube. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I blame my wife. Um, I told her one time, I said, that, you know, I need to get a typewriter for the office uh, to sort of pay homage to all the writers who have gone before me. We used to use typewriters to get the work done instead of a computer. And she found two at a uh, Salvation Army, uh, some kind of thrift store, something like that. She found two mm -hmm. of them and, um, and brought them home to me. Uh, what I didn't realize was uh, collecting typewriters is like crack cocaine. You just, once you start, there's no stopping. And um, I have the great fortune or misfortune, I'm not sure which, of being married to an enabler, who every time she sees a typewriter says, hey, you ought to buy that. And... Uh, then it went on from there. So uh, the first typewriter that I, I got, that is after I got rid of typewriters when I was a, a kid and a college student and stuff like that, 
that she brought home was, uh, it's called a KMM, a Royal KMM. If you ever watch Murder, She Wrote, the opening scene shows uh, Jessica Fletcher at a typewriter typing. Yes, yes. That's the type, that's the kind of typewriter. It's the same model typewriter. There's a gray version of that. That's called a KMG. The G stands for uh, gray, which is, it's the same typewriter, just a different paint on it. And then I said, you know, I'd really like to have the typewriter I had in high school. So I began searching eBay and finally won one of those. And then after that, I was hooked. I I just kept buying typewriters. Dare I ask you, do you have a favorite of the typewriter? Some are more important to me uh, because uh, they were part of my life. So a couple of my favorites is uh, a Royal Eldorado. It's black and gold and it's sleek looking and it's a horrible typewriter. Just doesn't type very well. But that's what I had when I was in high school and uh, part of college. And so that's one of my favorites. Um, there have been a few others uh, that I have. Uh, I, I then decided that uh, I wanted to get the kind of typewriter I learned to type on in school. Uh, I took typing at junior high school of all times. And I hated it and I complained and whined about it the whole time. And I said, I will never, ever, ever use typing. This is a total waste of time. And then I went on to become a writer and do 50 books. So apparently I was wrong about that. So some of those uh, are my favorites. And then recently, not recently, I guess it's been over a year now. I bought a electric typewriter. Uh, sometimes they're called hybrids or electric assists. It's not the like a one of the great big typewriters, uh, selectrics, you know, that return the carriage for you and do all of those yeah. kinds of things. You have to do all that yourself. But the actual typing is assisted by electric. And uh, it's one of my favorites because it is so cool to use. It is such a small form factor. And uh, writers will appreciate this. The keyboard is slightly different so that the quotation marks, which on a keyboard, if you look at your keyboard, is next to your right hand, pinky finger. On most typewriters, that's not the case. You'd have to push the shift key and go up and hit the two and things like that. It's very awkward to put in quotation marks. For some reason, on that one typewriter that's called a 5TE, Smith Corona uh, Electric, and it was a typewriter. It's a, a model of typewriter that JFK had when he was campaigning for president. Uh, but anyway, for some reason, they put it, that uh, quotation key, uh, where it is now on computers. And uh, I still have not found out why they did that. They didn't do that on their other typewriters, but they did it on that one. So it's kind of unique in that way. So it's kind of a favorite. Well, this is so good. Thank you for allowing us to take a moment to get to know you a little bit more. I've found over over time, when we can discover backstory about those that we are listening to, learning from, really the heart grows fonder because it's an open door into the life of, and I like that human element. So I really appreciate you giving us that that time today for us to be able to share a few fun things about you that may not necessarily be on your bio. Well, well now you. we're going to now we're going to head straight into our writing content for today. And I will tell you Al, I've heard of physical, relational and spiritual clutter. You're going to have to help me out here for us to be able to look at manuscript clutter. So here's here's my first question. Exactly what is it? What is manuscript clutter? It is uh, using too many words. And I'll I'll give you some examples of this as we go along. But uh, it is probably the greatest pitfall for new writers. And not only that, for very experienced writers. I've done a lot of editing. Sometimes publishers hire me to edit another writer's book. um, Or sometimes just to clean things up. 
sometimes do line edits. So I've done a lot of that, and I've worked with a lot of uh, up-and-coming writers uh, at writers' conferences. And for five years, maybe a little bit more, I was the director of the Blue Ridge Mountain Christian Writers' Conference, uh, where Edie Melson is now and uh, her crew doing such a wonderful job with that. She was my uh, assistant and then became my associate director. But in all those times, I, I looked at a lot of manuscripts. And one of the things I, I noticed, and it helped my writing because it pointed it out, the problem in my own writing, was there's a tendency to use too many words, unnecessary words, uh, words that really have no place of being there. And I think that comes from our childhood education, where it's, you know the teacher would tell us in grade school, now you have to give me two complete pages now. And I want a certain number of words. I want uh, 300 words or 400 words or 500 words. And so we would start cramming extra words in there. Lots of thes and other types of words. Never use a contraction because why write can't when you can write cannot and get you know, more mileage out of it. And that became a habit. Also, the way we speak has a lot of clutter in it. And that spills over into our writing too. So what I teach writers to do is when you're working on your first draft, you don't worry about this at all. All you worry about is getting through the story, getting it down on paper. The first draft is top secret, eyes only. No one else is going to see it, so you don't worry about it. You just get the story down, and then you come back, and when you start doing your second draft, that's when you're going to start taking out things that don't belong, putting in things you forgot. When you go through those phases of it, then that's how you end up cleaning up some of it. But there's a lot of clutter in the way we speak and in the way we write, and once you recognize them, they're very easy to get rid of. Can you give us a few examples of those? Yeah, William Zinser on Writing Well said, clutter is the disease of American writing. We are a society strangling in unnecessary words, circular constructions, pompous frills, and meaningless jargon. Apparently, he could get right to the point. We would also hear um, this phrase batted about quite a bit, and it's attributed to Mark Twain. We think he's the one that said it, but he said, writing is easy. All you have to do is cross out the wrong words. Of course, he was being cutesy. But I think he was bringing home a very important point, and that is that uh, writing involves not only putting words on the page, but getting rid of words on the page. And so I created Al's axiom, which is writing is putting words on the page. Great writing. Great writing is taking words off the page. And that's where the real skill comes in uh, to do all of those things. So what clutter basically is, it's redundancy. It's uh, adding things that you can take out and by taking them out, you strengthen your prose. It's easier to read. Cluttered writing is hard to digest. But here's the other reason it's important, uh, especially for writers. Editors and agents review an enormous amount of submissions. And when they find something that has a lot of clutter in it, that hasn't been fine-tuned, the first thing they think is, what's it going to cost me to get this edited? Mm. And so they factor that in. And so we have to remember that agents and editors are looking for a reason to reject a writer. Not because they're cruel, but they have to weed these things down. And the things that will appeal to them most is a great story and one that is well-written. If it's got a lot of clutter, a lot of redundancy, then that's just the perfect reason for them to reject the manuscript and go on because they don't want to read through all of it and they don't want to have to pay extra money to have it edited down to uh, something that a, a reader can appreciate. I like that you're sharing that with us. It's important to those that are going to be receiving our words that we're a little more pithy in what we share with them instead of thinking that we're 
going to be handing something in to our English teacher that requires a lot of words connected to the to the page. I think it'd be fun to do a study about why we write the way we do, what uh, what changed us um, and, and created some of these uh, bad habits as well as uh, creating some good habits. And I remember when uh, I was in college and in grad school, um, I had to read uh, some a lot of theology texts and some of them from some of the older folks who were trained in the writing in the 1800s. And it's horrible. I have one book, for example, that has a, a single paragraph going on for five or six pages. I mean, uh, typeset pages, uh, almost impossible to read because you can't uh, break the thoughts apart. Lots of clutter. Some of this uh, also happens. I, I teach at a university in the graduate level in a leadership course. And sometimes I see students trying to sound academic and it's the worst kind of writing ever. But some academicians get that way. They're, they were taught that you have to write at a level much higher than most readers can read at because it will make you look smart. And really, it doesn't. In fact, it has the opposite effect. It's, we end up reading it going, this, this person doesn't know how to write, no matter how many doctors they have after their name. So it can right? be counterproductive. I mean, for me, it would be maybe they don't know who their audience is. Or evidently, I'm not their audience if this is how they're wanting to write. You bring up a great point. I have been teaching and harping on this for a long time. I tell writers, never, never forget your reader. Mm. Must always keep uh, your reader in mind. Unfortunately, a lot of people go into writing because they're thinking of themselves. They're either looking for fame or they want people to admire them. And they, and they love to say, I'm a writer or I'm an author kind of thing. I think the best writers think of their readers. Will my reader understand this? Did I get this across in a clear fashion? Whether it's fiction or nonfiction, it doesn't matter. Does it get across? And, they, and some of the best writers, even in popular fiction, I'm thinking of Orson Scott Card. I, listened to, I was traveling. I was listening to one of his books on cassette. He writes uh, science fiction, secular writer. Uh, of course, I've developed an ear now for clutter. It's taken me years to, to get to that point. And I couldn't find any clutter in his writing. It was smooth. It was clean. It wasn't awkward at any point. I got to where I really hated the guy. Um, <laughs> it was so tightly written. Um, and it was, it was some of the best mm. uh, writing that I have, uh, I have ever read. And one of the things you'll notice is some of the, the best writers, most touted writers, have a very uncluttered writing style. Are there additional authors that you would recommend writers listen to? or read their works to get a gist of what that clean looks like or reads like? Uh, I, I can, but one of the things we need to remember is when you're reading a published book, which is all well and good, we have to remember, though, uh, that you're not reading just the author. Mm. Uh, another Al's axiom is writing is a solitary affair. Publishing is a team sport. So when you read a book, you pull it off the shelf and you look at it, it's not just the writer's words. There has been a editor who's taken it in and done the, uh, the big edit, the macro edit over it. And then it's gone to a line editor who has worked on it and tried to tighten up things and remove a lot of the clutter. Then it goes to a copy editor and the copy editor goes through and starts taking out words or you know, fixing the, the grammar and stuff. And sometimes, especially if you're working with a big publisher, you know, you might have three copy editors going over this. So when you're reading something off the shelf, a professionally published book, there's probably been five creative people working on it beyond the author to get it to that stage. So, 
what I'm concerned with is trying to get writers to get it as clean as possible to this point so that when they turn it in, the editor finds it a joy to work on and all the other editors that work on it find it a joy and they just don't change much because there's nothing to change. Okay. So I let, like me, let me describe clutter this way, if I can. Clutter is literary bloat. You think about it, it's just literary bloat. Uh, it's, it's putting stuff in there that doesn't belong. It's packing 25 pounds of potatoes in a 10-pound bag. Mm. It's, it's overriding. It's an attempt to wedge a few extra gears into a, switch, a Swiss watch, believing that it will somehow make it a better watch. And it won't. It'll break it. So unneeded words and phrases are as damaging as missing words and phrases. So that's what clutter is. It has many facets. There's purple prose and turgid writing and pleonasms, tautologies and prolix and all kinds of other fancy terms, which really boil down to mostly redundancies. I'm in agreement with you. So as a writer, how, how do I fix this for myself? What is it that okay, I'm, I, do I write, rewrite? Do I take classes? Do I go to conferences? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, what do I do? Yeah, going to conferences is good. The best thing you can do is find somebody whose writing is uncluttered and study it. Uh, I've, I've often taught that the, the best writers are writers who have uh, learned from other writers. They have analyzed the work. They've ruined their reading. That means simply that they study the writing. I'm a very slow reader, but that's usually because I'm analyzing what the writer's done. So I don't read fast, but I read deep and I try to learn from them. So the, the first thing to do is you don't worry about this when you write your first draft, as I said a little earlier. Right. Uh, that'll just distract you. Right now, you want to get the content down. You want to get the creative part down. So you don't worry about it in the first draft, but you obsess over it in the rewrite. Okay. Hemingway said it this way. Uh, it's not the most Christian phrase, but you, the way he said it was, Ernest Hemingway said, write drunk, revise sober. Mm. That is, so when you're writing, you want to be free and getting everything out, and then you go back and edit. And that's where, to me, in writing, the real magic takes place. So the key then is just to know a few of these. Once you recognize them, then it's kind of fun to catch them. So let me give you an example, if I may. Yes. Uh, it, sometime back... Uh, I was watching an old sci-fi movie. I grew up on old sci-fi movies. In fact, they were old when I was watching them. Uh, and I liked them. These would be all the ones that had giant ants and flying saucers and stuff. That's kind of what I grew up with. And I sat down one day and found that there was going to be a uh, old science fiction movie from 1958 called The Giant Behemoth, a British-made movie, British production, The Giant Behemoth. And I, I sat down to watch it and I go, boy, I haven't seen this one in a great many years. Boy, 1950. And then I paused. I thought, what is wrong with this title? A giant behemoth. Well, it's clutter. It's a redundancy. Behemoth means giant. Right. There's no such thing as a tiny behemoth. <laughs> right. So it's just a behemoth. Okay. That's called a tautology, using two words to say the same thing. And you learn to look for these. It was Zinzer who said fighting clutter is like uh, finding weeds. You're always slightly behind, um, but you just keep weeding anyway. So I noticed that, and that's all I could think about through the whole movie was, what other kind of behemoth is there but a giant behemoth? Well, when they titled that, they didn't really give it any thought because that's how we speak. So there's a thing called a tautology, and I, I encourage listeners, don't worry about the fancy terms. Okay, it's, it's not an academic lesson. Just don't use two words when one will do. Or don't use five words when two will do. 
basically, tautology means to say the same thing twice. That's how I remember it. Tautology begins with a T, and twice begins with a T, and that's how I remember it. Okay. Uh, by the way, tautology has different meanings in different uh, academic pursuits. So what we're talking about here is in the uh, writing world, tautology means to use two of the uh, two words, different words, the same way. It's a it's a needless repetition, uh, either of a term or of uh, a statement of of somehow. It's, it's a way of being re redundant. So you want an example? Yes, I would love some. Okay, one of the examples uh, comes out of. Uh, out of speech, and it was uh, by Dan Quayle. It's one of my, my favorites. And also, I'll give you one from George Bush. This isn't political. This is just what happens in our speech. And trust me, I have done this many, many times. But Dan Quayle once said, if we do not succeed, we run the risk of failure. There it is. Yeah. Well, that is the definition of failure is to not succeed. So what he really meant to say was, we run the risk of failure. If we don't do something, if we don't change things, we run the risk of failure. But what he ended up saying was, if we do not succeed, we run the risk of failure. In fact, George W. Bush did that. He said, our nation must come together to unite, must come together to unite. I don't think you can scatter and unite. So to unite means to come together. So really all he needed to say was, our nation must come together, and then he's done. That's what you start looking for. I need to put one little proviso in here, is that sometimes you do these things for effect. So let's take Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. Yes. Uh, just a little bit of this. But the fact is, he wrote, the fact is I was napping and so gently you came rapping and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door. Well, of course, he's trying to do a poetic meter. He wants a certain rhythm in that. But so he says, rapping, tapping, tapping. So he says the same thing three times. But he did it for effect. And that would be fine. That's really acceptable. Another would be Abraham Lincoln. Gettysburg Address, where he says, with malice towards none and charity for all, the firmness in the right is God gives us to see the right. Well, if you have no malice towards anyone, then all you have is charity. Or if you have charity for all, there will be no malice. So it's redundant. But it's a stronger statement this way. But this again is in oration. He's making it memorable. He's also uh, getting a cadence in it that makes it memorable. So sometimes it is acceptable. You just don't want to do it a lot and you don't want to do it by accident. You want to do it on purpose. Good. So very far, good. so good? Oh, very, very good. I like I like what you said and identifying with the, cl the clutter itself, the redundancy that we find in our writing. Are there other forms of clutter beyond saying the same thing again? Yes. There is. Let me just finish the tautology with this thing so mm -hmm. people will understand it. We'll sure. see things like it was a fatal murder, a fatal mur a dead corpse. There's no such thing as a living corpse, corpse unless you were writing zombie books. Um, a small dwarf as opposed to a tall dwarf. A new innovation as opposed to an old innovation. Some of the others, they're, they're a retreat to the rear. Right. No one ever retreats to the front. If you're retreating, you are going backwards. Or a man wrote his own autobiography, his own autobiography, as opposed to writing someone else's autobiography, I guess. These yeah. are redundancies. Another one that comes up quite a bit is a pleonasm. Doesn't that sound fancy? It sounds very uh, pleonasm. fancy. Yeah, spelled P-L-E-O-N-A-S-M, a pleonasm. Again, don't worry about the fancy terms. There's not going to be any test on it. It's simply using the use of more words than are necessary. It's superfluous writing. 
You're just throwing words in there that are certainly not needed. So, for example, I heard the gunshot with my own ears. Who's, I heard who's the gunshot with my own <laughs> Yeah. As opposed to I heard the gunshot with someone else's ears, with Frank's ears. Uh, it makes no sense. I just heard the gunshot. Heard is all you need, is that, and the ears were involved if you heard it. Here's one we use that we almost never notice. It's almost a throwaway word, and it's the word both. I'm horrible with this. I wish I had a nickel for every time I misused the word both or unnecessarily used it. He was both tall and heavy. How about he was tall and heavy? See, both is not needed. I do that as well. Yeah, I use almost everyone like does. Yeah, I do that. I've, I've gotten to where I do a search for the word both. I was so bad oh, about that's it. Good. That's yeah, good. I just do. I just search for both and see if it really applies. But usually you don't need the word both. Usually. She crouched down. Have you ever seen anyone crouch up? And what we use constantly and we never really think about, we had tuna fish sandwiches for lunch. Tuna fish. A tuna is a fish. It's just a tuna sandwich for lunch. Oh, uh, Okay, so we, we use the word tuna fish. It's almost as though it's become a single word. True, but now let me, true. Let me flip it around here real quick, because sometimes, again, you can do it for effect or it is necessary for the kind of writing you're doing. So Raymond Chandler wrote The Big Sleep. He's writing it in first person, and this is where uh, you can allow some of these things because you're writing from a person's point of view, and you have their personality, their educational background, the way they talk uh, in, in first person. They are the narrator. So you get away with that. So, for example, in Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep, he wrote, Beyond the garage were some decorative trees trimmed as carefully as a poodle dog. A poodle dog. Instead of a poodle. How many poodles are not dogs? Mm. You see, so it's, it's carefully as poodles would have worked. However, that's not what his character would have said. So to be true to the character, he has poodle dogs because of uh, the character that Raymond Chandler is using. It goes to establishing who that character is. So sometimes you use it again for effect. So th those are pleonasms. So after pleonasms, <laughs> oh, we <laughs> can go, go on and on and on and on. Forever, ever. Yeah, the, the basic thing, the thing you really want to focus on is am I using words that I don't need? And some of the things I will try to do is uh, I will try to take a sentence and break it. How many words can I take out and the sentence still makes sense. Oh, I like if that. you take out one too many, it no longer makes sense. Then I know I've gone too far. But what it does is it helps trains me in what I'm doing. Uh, another form of clutter is called prolix. Prolix is just meaning way too many words. My favorite term for it is verberia. The more official word is logoria, logo from word. But yeah, it's, it's uh, running off at the mouth. It's just using far too many uh, words than are necessary. Uh, you'll find that in the, uh, oh, I just lost the name of the, uh, uh, the author. Uh, it was a dark and stormy night. That sentence isn't so bad, but if you go a couple more sentences, uh, he's just running on and on. And where some of that comes from, you might find this fascinating, where some of that comes from is early writers were paid by the word. Well, there so you go. So if you were writing... Yeah, if you were writing like a, I mean, a crime piece or a mystery or a cozy mystery and you're putting them in uh, those little magazines that used to come out, those little collections of short stories that would come out, those people were paid, depending what era you're in, one cent, two cents, a nickel a word. And so they wanted to have as many words in there as they could get. And that would lead to these kinds of things. You would fall right into that pattern because you're wanting to get paid as much as you could. 
So that's right. Now we're having to cut back and use our words more carefully and with purpose to have the flow that we want in our writing. Unless you said, like you said, unless it's intentional. So look for the things that aren't. I like that you do the seek or the find. You know, I like doing that myself where I go in and I go, okay, I want to find all of the that's. Every that that I have in there and I want to see, is that necessary? Or even the it, because what is it? It should be something that shouldn't be an it. So would that fall Preach in it. line with this as well? It, it would. And uh, that has been one of the problems I've always suffered with. I still suffer with it. The word that. I overuse the word that. So I got very sensitive about it and I kept taking them all out. And then I would try to run a few grammar checkers over it and stuff too. But they say they started putting them back in. So I, I knew I'd maybe gone too far. But you're, you're right. Those are words we don't even think about. And we often do that. We use uh, words without thought. Words without thought. And we, yeah. like you so said, we, we could go on and on with this. Oh, yes. Uh, just a couple I can mention that they don't take a lot of explanation, but uh, sure. um, dialogue tags we use too often. He said, she said, he said, she said. We use those too often. My rule of thumb is use a beat where the, the, the subject of the sentence, the speaker does something, ran his fingers through his hair or something, whatever. Occasionally, we'll take some of those. If you only have two people, most of the time you don't need as many dialogue tags or attributions as they're called. Uh, also take them out when you can, but it's got to be clear. You got to make sure the reader don't never forget your reader that the reader can understand who's saying what, when. So cut down on them uh, is, is one of the things you want to do. Uh, those eat up a, a lot of space trying to sound too highfalutin. I was mm. doing a rewrite uh, that I was hired to do uh, for somebody prone to purple prose. Purple prose is flowery, overwritten kind of stuff. There used to be a preacher who used to talk about that. If in the, in Texas, if it was hot, he would uh, turn to one of the ushers and he'd say, "Brother, would you go to that finely crafted stained glass window in that wood paneled wall and open the windows so the breath of God can come in and cool the people who have come to worship?" Oh. And I'm not, yeah, I'm not that formal. I'd say, "Hey, bud, can you open the window?" Um, <laughs> It just it wasn't realistic, but he was of a different generation. So, purple prose is just over uh, writing. So, really, there's a there's a whole bunch of them. But once you start looking for them, adjectives, adverbs, too many modifiers, that sort of thing. Once you start hunting for them, it will become a habit to you, and it's actually kind of fun. It's a lot of fun when you catch them in other people's writings. Yeah, it's much more fun when you catch it in their writing than it is your own. But uh, in your own, yes. More, yeah. And well, that's something too. When you write, for me, I think it's a very good idea to pass my writing on to someone else who can actually be looking for some of these. Because I can use Grammarly, I can use a lot of spell checkers or find this, but it's still more eyes on it helps me. And to find Which someone some who do. does this well. Yes, and that understands the kind of writing you're doing. Uh, a lot of people are not qualified to do it. So be careful. I often get that, well, you know, I've got a sister who's an English professor. And sometimes they're the worst at it because they don't understand the genre. Sometimes right. they're good. My my son calls these beta writers. A beta writer is, he has about like five people and he takes a, his latest book and he gives it to them. And he just says, have at it. And they will catch a lot of the little things that we can't see. We become... We come, become clutter blind 
Uh, it's very hard to find them in your own works. Um, and my wife usually reads everything that I write because um, she knows the kind of mistakes that I make. And I have some real, real bad typos. I have some funny typos because uh, mine make sense and, and they haunt me. Fortunately, the editors catch most of them. That's excellent. Is there a time when an author shouldn't obsess? Is it when I'm being intentional with it? I always advise writers to first know thyself. Uh, mm. You have to find out how you work. Our brains don't function the same way. Uh, people don't write the way I do, and I don't write the way they do. That's fine. That's the way we are. That's, that's called being creative. So you find out how you're wired. I can tell you what I do is I write. I fix things if I see them. I don't worry about it otherwise. And I write. And then what I've done, sometimes what I'll do is I'll wait till the next day and I'll reread what I wrote the previous day. I'll catch a few things. Then I'll, I'll write what I'm doing. I'll go back and read that the next day. And then um, if I'm like a contract or something, I'm, I'm on a deadline, then what I'll do is I'll set aside part of one day, like a Friday or something, and I'll read everything I wrote that week. That's when I begin to see more and more problems. I also, and I find this very useful, I have my computer read to me. I highlight things and it will uh, just read it out loud to me. And I will usually hear the problem before I will see it. And if you're using the uh, latest version of Microsoft Word, uh, it has a thing called read aloud. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not as good as setting it up in the uh, accessibility section you know, of, for, for handicapped folks. There's a way of getting uh, text to speech is what you want. And you can select different voices and stuff. And I have a little macro for it. Mine is the start S key. Sometimes it's something else, uh, but it'll start reading. And I will usually hear a problem before I see it. I like also reading aloud. That's why mm -hmm. when I work with some of my clients, I go, read it out loud. How does it sound to you? How does it flow to you? So that's very good. Well, as we wrap up today, and your information has been great, is there a tip or a thought that you want to leave for those writers who think, Man, this is, I'm going to find all these mistakes and then I'm going to be discouraged. And how do I, how do I know that my writing's even good enough if I find all of this? How would you encourage that writer? Or is there a special leave that you like to have for writers? Yeah, we have to go back and, and redefine the craft and the art of writing. Uh, no one writes perfectly first time. Uh, I'm not sure that's possible. Uh, they write and they rewrite. The, the first draft to me is I'm getting the story down. Uh, now, I've done so much writing that I get a lot of it uh, first time around. I just have to edit what I do. But when I was first starting, I'd go back and rewrite uh, these things. If, if you're a sculptor and you start with a, a block of marble, when you start chipping the stuff away that you don't want, that is the process of revealing what's inside. Those little chips are not errors. It's not because you bought a bad piece of marble. You're in the process. So when you go through and you, you're finding mistakes, really, I don't even like to call them mistakes. It's just the process of writing. And we don't get everything typed just right, or we have a better idea later. That is still part of the craft of writing. That's the way you do it. It's not done in a single sitting. It's not done in one pass. Uh, painters often paint over what they had done before until they get it right. Use the same canvas and sometimes just keep painting over and over them until they get it just right. I spent 10 years in architecture. We never got it right on the first set of plans. So we do the, the basic design and then we go back and we work on it. We work on it till all of a sudden we get it fixed. In every creative act, uh, 
there's going to be something that's going to be changed. I worked with a designer, came up with a great plan for a, it was a multi-story house and he gave it to me. I worked on working drawings. That's the thing they built from. And I took it back to him and I said, well, we've got a little problem here. You're going to have to move the bathroom on the second floor. He goes, oh, no, 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 that's perfect. I said, well, if you don't, you're going to have the sewer pipe, three to <laughs> three and a half inch iron pipe that comes out of the bottom of your toilet down into your kitchen because you don't have enough floor space. It has to be at a, a slope. So ah. all the bad stuff flows downhill. As time he gets to the wall that is supposed to go down, it's going to be sticking about a foot into the kitchen. So you're going to have to do something. Either give me a very thick floor or move that thing. Well, he was very good at what he did. He just didn't see that. Sometimes you don't see it first time. And I like that that's, you that's say That's part of the craft. Right. That it's, it's not a mistake. It's just going back and revealing more of the storyline, revealing a better. I like what and you had mentioned. Maybe there's something better that would happen in that particular moment in your writing. Something that you thought of that you didn't think of when you wrote it a month ago. So when we go back, it's, no, this would be much better right there. Part of the writing process. My son and I are working on a book together. And I finished uh, my portion. And I had to send it to him so he could start his portion. He did the first section. I did the second section. Now he's going to do the third. I sent the second off to him yesterday. No sooner I sent it off, I thought, you know, I could change that last line to read this way. Okay. I had, what, 30 minutes after I sent it off, I was uh, reanalyzing it. And that's fine because it's our first draft. So I don't, I don't care. We can do that. But that's the process. That is the art. It is the art. I like that. Well, everyone, I hope that you have enjoyed and gleaned so much from Al being here with us today. You can find out more about him and his amazing books. He has so many. If you go to his website at www.altongansky.com, A-L-T-O-N-G-A-N-S-K-Y.com. We do have that in the show notes. We have just enjoyed you being here with us today, Al. Thank you so much for being on Your Best Writing Life. We hope to have you back again. Uh, anytime. It's been a pleasure. So good. And thank you, friends, for joining us. I look forward to being here with you next time right here on Your Best Writing Life.